uh, this evening is from Luke's Gospel. We're looking at some of the, uh, we might call them the earliest Christmas carols, the earliest songs celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, four songs recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. Last week we looked at Mary's song, the Magnificat, I think that's called in Latin, and this week's song is Zechariah's song, which also has a Latin title, I think it's Benedictus. So Zechariah's song, you may have noticed, starts in verse 67, but I'm going to read a wee bit of the context, so we'll start uh, reading together from verse 5. So Luke chapter 1, verse 5. chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well on in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was completed, he returned home. 
After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And then we move over to verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Amen. Well done. I'd forgotten how many verses that, that uh, hymn had, but you sang it very, very well. And thank you to Jim. I'm assuming Jim switched the heating off there, is that right? I was feeling, I was feeling really sorry for that star up there. Uh, so on behalf of the star, thank you, Jim. We um, hosted the Monklands Primary School Quiz Heats last month here in the church in this very uh, room. And I was given what I thought would be a relatively simple task, or two relatively simple tasks. I had to firstly welcome people uh, on behalf of the church, and then I had to read out the names of the children who were coming up here to compete in the quiz. Both sounded very simple, but as I was handed the list of the names, I realized it wasn't as simple as I thought it was going to be because there were a lot of names that I didn't really recognize, and so I wasn't sure if I was pronouncing them properly or not. I, I think that there's a tendency now for people to name their children after famous people. And although I'm not that old, I'm old at heart and I'm very out of touch and I don't know many famous people, so I, I didn't really know a lot of the names. And some of the names looked like normal names, but they had slightly different spelling, and I thought, am I supposed to pronounce that differently? So I kind of bumbled my way through as best as I could, but I did find it a challenge. Uh, not trying to be critical of, of parents, because I remember vividly the sense of the weight of responsibility, how difficult it is to find the perfect name for your child. You are very aware that this is a name that your child will carry with them for the rest of their life. We had the bumper book of baby names. It was well worn by the time we were 
finished with it. And you had to kind of imagine what it would be like to carry that name into various contexts. So would that name be okay when our child goes for her first job interview? Or, you know, would that name be okay when a handsome young man comes over and says, what's your name? Gorgeous. And she says, Holga or Helga. Probably wouldn't really work. Or going back to school, you know, primary school, would the name work in the playground okay? That rules out every name that rhymes with smelly and all these kind of things. So you, you cross a lot off the list, but you're still left with a lot of names. It's a hard task and it's a big responsibility for most of us. But not so for some, not so for Elizabeth and Zechariah. There was no decision to be made at all for them. It had all been decided on their behalf. When we meet them in Scripture, they're already old. Presumably their hopes and dreams of motherhood and fatherhood have long since dissipated and died. They are, the Bible says, well on in years, which you sense is sort of a, a kind of almost a euphemistic way of saying they're, they're really quite old now. And uh, you have this sense that it, it's gone for them as far as they are concerned. And one day, Zechariah is serving in the temple, and God meets him in a powerful way. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Isn't that strange that Luke feels the need to record where the angel was standing in the temple? Surely, all that matters is that he is serving the Lord in the temple, and then suddenly, there's an angel. But Luke records for us where the angel stood. And I think he records that for a reason. The, the altar of incense was to speak to God's people of the prayers of his people ascending on high, rising up to the heavenlies. It was a reminder that the prayers of the saints are a sweet smell to God. They are a fragrant offering to him. In Revelation, John is given a glimpse into heaven itself and he sees golden bowls full of incense, and we are told they are the prayers of the saints. So when you pray in Christ's name to God, your prayers are a fragrant offering to Him. And I think it's important that we know that. Luke doesn't want us to miss the fact that encompassed within this great and glorious story, the greatest story ever told, the prayers of Elizabeth and of Zechariah have their part to play. Uh, and it kind of, right at the start of the story, poses us a question. It probes us, it asks us, are our prayers playing their part in what God is doing today? In our generation, and in our nation, in our, in our town, in our church, are our prayers playing their part in what God is doing in our midst. And the angel Gabriel wants Elizabeth and Zechariah to know their prayers have played their part too, because it's the first thing that he says to him, verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. I suspect 
Zechariah has long forgotten about his prayer, but heaven has heard their cry and has not forgotten. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. Zechariah, and I'm sure Elizabeth, have prayed and God has heard. The Lord's timing was not their timing, and sometimes that's the way. Sometimes we pray, and the answer is not yet. The angel tells Zechariah, and uh, through him, Elizabeth finds out that they are to have a son and that his name is to be John. So, no need for the bumper book of baby names for Elizabeth and Zechariah. He is to be called John. And the name John means the Lord is gracious, or the Lord is uh, giver. The Lord gives, the Lord is gracious. The Lord's gift could mean all of these things. And that was true for Elizabeth and Zechariah. John was the Lord's gracious gift to them when they least expected it. He will be a joy and a delight to you, the angel Gabriel says to John. He says to Zechariah, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people, Elizabeth says in verse 25. He is God's gracious gift to this couple. But I don't think that's the only name, the only reason he has given the name John, because John's whole life is to point to the one who came full of grace and truth. His calling from God, John's calling from God, is to point to the greatest gift ever given. It is to point to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given us the gift of Himself. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And John's role is to point to Christ Jesus. So, all this by way of introduction, we are supposed to be looking at the song of Zechariah, which starts in verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and has redeemed His people. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come. There is a sense in which God had visited His people in the past. We might say through His chosen servants, in a sense, He visited His own people. He had come in a sense, as he spoke to Abraham and told him to leave his land and to go to a land that he would uh, disclose to him. He has come in a sense when he would meet with Moses face to face, as it were, and when he raised up Moses to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt. He came in a sense, in a way, when um, he would lead God's his own people through the wilderness, 
by pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, or maybe in giving His Word to the prophets to proclaim to His people. But this is something so much greater than all of these visitations. Someone greater than that. In Jesus Christ, God has truly and fully and completely come into the world. Not just a messenger, a spokesman, a representative, but God Himself has stepped into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God stepped into the world in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has come. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Tim Keller says, Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ. He knows your pain firsthand. Christianity stands apart from every other religion in that claim. He knows what it is to live with hunger and thirst. He knows what it is to be betrayed and to be beaten. He knows what it is to be tempted and to be tested and to be tormented. He knows what it is to grieve, what it is to cry, what it is to bleed. He knows. God knows. Our God knows, not just because He is all-knowing, but because He's experienced the reality of all of these things in Christ Jesus. He that made man was made man. He came not just to see and not just to experience, but He came as a man with a mission. He came not just to see, but He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Mary and Joseph didn't need the bumper book of baby names either, did they? You shall give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come. Uh, why past tense? Maybe because uh, Zechariah is kind of standing on the threshold of history, that period be- sort of between B.C. and A.D. Maybe it's because Luke tells us he is prophesying, so he's looking from a different perspective altogether, from God's perspective. Maybe because he is just being reminded that when God issues a promise, it is as good as done. We don't know. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people that God came to earth in flesh, truly God and yet truly man, fully God and yet fully man, is staggering enough, but we must never lose sight of the fact that He came as a man with a mission. He came to accomplish something. He came to achieve something. He came to do something. He came to rescue. He came to redeem. It's a word loaded with meaning, loaded with significance for the people of Israel. They carried a collective memory. We are very individualistic in our society, not so for Israel. They 
they were a collective community, the people of God, and they had this collective memory of life lived as slaves in Egypt. Life lived as slaves in Egypt. Many years, many generations, Hebrew babies born into slavery, living as slaves, dying as slaves. Hard years at the hands of merciless oppressors, but God had not forgotten His people, nor had He forgotten His promises, and so He raises up Moses to set God's people free. Slaves could be redeemed in the ancient world. They could be paid for, bought back, as it were, and set free. Probably not something that was very common to buy a slave just to set them free, but it could be done. Moses tells Pharaoh to let God's people go, to set God's people free. And Pharaoh refuses, but God will not be stopped. He's already said to his people, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so those acts of judgment came in the form of the plagues. The last plague was the most serious the death of the firstborn son. And the only reason that the Israelites were spared was because they did what they were told to do. They took a lamb without defect, without blemish. The lamb was killed and the blood was smeared on the doorposts over the Israelites' houses so that when death uh, came across Egypt, it passed over those houses which had been sprinkled with the blood of a lamb. And from this sacrifice, God's people were at last set free. Well, Moses points forward to Jesus. Jesus came to redeem us. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, we were in slavery, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus himself came that he came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He bought our freedom with his blood shed on the cross. What John the Baptist say when he grew up and when he saw the Lord Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect, perfect and pure, spotless and sinless, bound that we might go free, cursed that we might be blessed, killed that we might live. What did Jesus save us from? Verse 71 says, The hand of all who hate us, Verse 74 says, the hand of our enemies. Well, what is our greatest enemy? There can be no doubt as you read the Gospels that most of the Jews in Jesus' day would have said Rome. Rome is our greatest enemy. 
Rome is the hand that holds us down, that keeps us back, the hand of oppression upon us. Rome is the empire that reminds us of Egypt. They're not in Egypt anymore. They're in their own land, but Roman soldiers are walking their streets. Their, their, their money, their taxes are going to fund this profoundly pagan empire. They have this uh, watchtower. Actually, every time I come into the car park, I think of it because I see uh, Flower Hill, or Cairn Lee, uh, the, the kind of tower towering over the car park, as, as it were. And if you look at a model of the second temple, you'll see that the Romans, they weren't allowed in the temple courts because they weren't Jews. So they built this big uh, tower, this big watchtower, which towered, funnily enough, over the temple courts, and they were able to look in and to see what those pesky Jews were doing in the temple grounds. So the eye of Rome was always upon them, the hand of Rome was always holding them down. And they were looking for the Messiah to come, many of them to redeem them from Rome, to raise up an army and to reclaim their land. But that's not what Christ came to do. Too small, too small. Rome is not the enemy and killing was not the way for the Lord Jesus. Verse 76 of Zechariah's song, he now addresses his unborn son and he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. That is our greatest enemy. That is the root, the source of all of our problems, of all of our sadness, of all of our sorrow. That is the real enemy. Rome can kill the body, but it's sin that can kill the soul. Sin is slavery of the greatest magnitude. Everyone who sins, says Jesus, is a slave to sin. Sin is addictive. The more you feed it, the hungrier it gets. Sin is deceptive. It will promise you what it does not give. It will promise you happiness. It will promise you fulfillment. And all it brings is pain and emptiness. Sin is destructive. The wages of sin is death. We die and we face judgment, and those who are unforgiven, or to put it in the language of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, those who die in their sins will face judgment. They will face a second death. They will face eternal death. They will face the wrath of God. But the good news of great joy that we celebrate at this time of year, and hopefully at every time of year, is that God has come. God has come in Christ, and He has come to redeem us. He has come to rescue all who will turn to Him and trust in Him and follow after Him. He has come to free us from sin's power, to free us from sin's penalty. There ought to be no fear of condemnation for those of us who are to be found in Christ Jesus. No fear of death. Death has lost its sting. Alistair Begg says, Death for the Christian is to fall asleep in the arms of Jesus and to wake up finding out 
that you are at home. Freedom from sin and its fruits. Freedom to what? We are freed from sin and all the fruits of sin. And we are freed to, verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Here is freedom. Freedom is not serving no one. Freedom is not serving yourself. Freedom is serving the Lord without fear because you are living in the love of the Lord in Christ Jesus. He has washed us clean. He has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. He promises never to remember them. And so we have nothing to fear as we serve Him in holiness and righteousness. We are, of course, robed in righteousness. We sing of uh, royal robes I don't deserve, the imputed righteousness of Christ. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are washed clean. We are righteous in the eyes of God, but we are also called to grow in holiness as well, aren't we? We are free from sin's power. The old nature will rear its ugly head from time to time. We have to remind ourselves in those moments, no, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. I am dead to the old way of life. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are free from sin's power. We ought to be, we must be moving on, growing in holiness. This is true freedom. Not serving no master, not serving ourselves, but serving the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. Here is freedom in the place of slavery. Here is light in the place of darkness. You see the imagery that Zechariah uses? Light in the place of darkness. Life in the place of death. Peace in the place of pain because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. McShane says, chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.